Welcome to Liberty Lockdown. Please scan your barcode. Your liberty ain't gone, but yeah, it's on hold. Where did it come from and where did it Welcome, everybody, to another live stream edition of Liberty Lockdown. This is Clint Russell. I am back from Virginia. Had a great time on TimCast. Did both the uh, Friday and Monday appearance. It was it was legendary. I enjoyed it tremendously. And uh, to keep the legendary hits of rolling, today I have on Professor St. Ange. He has been uh, blowing up the Twitter sphere with his economic understanding. He comes from my my camp. He's a fellow at Mises as well as an economist for Heritage. And uh, without further ado, Doctor, what's up, brother? Hey, it's great to be here. Thanks. <laughs> um, you probably don't know much about me, but I was a, a mortgage broker for about a dozen years. Had a mortgage shop and come from the Austrian school. So I thought that this would be a, a tremendous conversation. I, I wanted to start off by getting into the the Urban Doom Loop video that you put out this yes. morning. Yes. Um, yeah. I mean, this is something that anyone with any Austrian economics understanding kind of <laughs> saw saw coming. I don't think any of us understood that there would be a political alignment that actually seems to be propagating this, though, you know, even as it degrades to the point of a breaking point in, uh, you know, San Francisco is the most obvious example, but there's many liberal cities that are doing the same where they're embracing homelessness, or excuse me, homelessness, as well as, um, you know, absolutely astronomical tax rates, very burdensome regulatory environment. Uh, I mean, the list goes on and on. They lock down many of these businesses for over a year. Uh, mm -hmm. It just, it doesn't seem as if the political class is willing to ever look in the mirror and realize that they are the cause of this destruction. Do you think they ever will? <sighs> They have become amazingly short-sighted, and I mean, in a sense, they've always been very short-sighted, right? It's been a very, very long time since we've actually had statesmen running the republic. But for, I think, most of our lives, voters had sort of held their feet to the fire to a certain degree. And it seems like something really changed over the past five or ten years where there's extraordinarily little uh, accountability the voters, I assume, are no better or worse than they've always been. And so, you know, if you sort of look for what changed over that period, uh, I think the best candidate is that the media, you know, the media went from pretending to be objective to just covering for the regime. And we're to the point now where politicians do whatever is in their own interests in the very short term because they know that the media has their back. Yeah. Uh, it it is remarkable though that the the voters in these cities aren't just having reality hit them in the face. I mean, it's so it's. Uh, I was born and raised in California in San Diego, and um, you know, I, I witnessed San Francisco and and Los Angeles's degradation. But I, as soon as I saw it spread all the way to San Diego, I knew the whole state was lost because like San Diego was really the last yeah right bastion yeah. of any sort of sanity in California in terms of major cities. Obviously, there's still rural mm -hmm. areas that aren't totally out of their minds. Um, but let, let's get into the uh, the urban doom loop. Uh, you you threw out a, a bunch of statistics that were really startling to me. Um, I think from my vantage point as a former mortgage guy, most startling was the thirty percent plus vacancy rate in commercial real estate in San Francisco. That that doesn't seem sustainable. <laughs> yeah, it's incredible. Uh, you know that was some of the most in demand real estate in the entire country before the pandemic. It was about a four percent vacancy rate, which you know from the industry that. 
you know, if 4% of the parking spaces are open in a city, you cannot find a parking space. I mean, it's not like, you know, the 4% is just sitting there waiting for you to pick it up. Uh, that basically is going to feel to people like zero, <laughs> um, vacancy. And now it's one in three. It's actually rising, right? What's, what's happening at this point is that as the leases run out, uh, stores, offices are just leaving. So, you, you know, that's, that's 31% with a bunch of the remaining ones locked in, mm-hmm. uh, implying that, you know, over the next year or two, that might head towards 40, 50%. There is a point where the city is dead, right? You get this uh, this doom loop, you know, this sort of accelerating collapse where the streets feel empty, the restaurants and stores close down, you know, you've got nothing but, you know, boarded up uh, stores. And then even the people who are left, they feel like, you know, the employees don't want to come to work. Uh, you know, there is some point where they either decamp to the suburbs, which is what happened in Detroit, for example, or, you know, they just move all together, given that the state of California is pretty much putting the screws on them no matter where. Well, it begs the question, uh, do you think that the fate of San Francisco looks something like Detroit? On the path they are going, I think it certainly looks like Detroit. Uh, the metropolitan area of Detroit actually didn't collapse as badly as people have in their mind. The city center of Detroit emptied out and became a wasteland, but the suburbs of Detroit are pretty much like any suburb in the U.S. uh, because the state of Michigan did not go insane at the same time. Mm. So I think it's possible that what you could see in places like San Fran or L.A. could potentially be even worse than Detroit, where the city center is gutted while uh, people in the suburbs are, you know, they're looking at Austin or Dallas or really anywhere civilized that's outside of the state of California at the moment. Well, what what makes this unique, though, is that, you know, Detroit kind of died because there was... uh, at least this is my understanding of it, that there was a, a right. global, globalization of the economy and that much of the production of motor vehicles was being outsourced to Mexico <clears> and other <throat> other countries with cheaper labor costs. Um, and obviously the unionization and the, the, the labor costs in Detroit were higher than what they could find in other nations. Um, this this is a unique situation because there really isn't anything that's that's causing, in terms of just like, natural economic competitive yeah, forces right. that is that is causing the industries to flee San Francisco it is strictly a governmental program or, or am i wrong yeah i think you're right uh you know tech is doing just fine they're they're running through a rough patch <clears throat> at the moment with layoffs but a lot of that is just because they grew so fast during the pandemic right uh, because they had a captive audience But, you know, this is not a situation like Detroit where the main industry went into decline. Now, of course, even when we talk about Detroit, there were plenty of jobs created all over the country. Right. So Austin, Seattle, uh, you know, even places like L.A. that are not particularly tech focused. Plenty of other cities in the U.S. got millions and millions of new jobs. Uh, It's so I think Detroit is not so much why did, you know, the auto industry collapse. It's more like, well, sure, industries, you know, cycle through all the time. 
uh, from decade to, to decade, the jobs change. The question is really, why did those new jobs not come to Detroit? And I think what happened in Detroit is that the local government saw the car industry as a hostage that, mm. you know, it could just keep squeezing and squeezing more out of it. And yeah, that's true. You know, they they had factories set up. Those are very expensive factories. They had their their uh, workforce was there. The problem is that once you push them past a certain line, they go away. And once they go away, they do not come back. Yeah. And meanwhile, they had created such a hostile attitude towards business in general because they had sort of this like hostage industrial complex that when that main hostage finally fled, all of those millions of new jobs that were created all over the country, those went to everywhere but Detroit. Right. Well, and and <laughs> having been an entrepreneur in California, I can tell yeah. you that that is a, a very similar tale to what I felt and experienced in that time. It was just like, okay, I'm getting taxed to death. The regulatory environment wants to you know audit me every year because I'm not a yep. conventional lender. Um, so I'm being treated as if I'm a criminal, even though... I'm not, you know, <laughs> mm -hmm. um, right. And, and then on top of that, you have the lockdowns on top of that. You have, uh, you know, just generally unfriendly business practices, a regulatory environment that makes it absolutely miserable to exist, uh, basically impossible to coexist with that state government. And, yep. and I, I left and went 3000 miles away and I was probably one of about a million, uh, Californians that did that over the past three years or even more. Um, yeah. and I don't, I don't think those people are coming back. So is, I'm just trying to like get a vision for what California looks like. Are they just going to open up the border and replace it with, you know, Mexican immigrants? I, I don't, I don't understand what they think their future is, or is it all just short-sighted because they're, you know, cultists and true believers? Yeah, that's what's happened in city after city. Uh, there's a political science term for it. It's called the Curley effect, which is where if you put in, you know, uh, policies against the rich or against companies, um, in theory, at some point, you're doing too much and they would push back. But what happens, in fact, is that they leave. And so at like the more extreme policies lead to a change in the electorate right. so that like the more extreme you go, the more popular you actually get because your <laughs> remaining voters absolutely love what you're doing. Now, of course, the whole place absolutely collapses but, you know, that's happened in cities like St. Louis or Baltimore or Detroit, right? There's cities all over the country that in theory, there should be some point where everybody looks around and says, wait a minute, this is crazy. Let's stop doing this. Uh, but no, those people leave. And then wow. the remaining voters are, in fact, they want more. Maybe they want more handouts or more city benefits and so on. Right. Well, I mean, but at some point, doesn't economics come into play where you have to you have to be able to balance the budget and and you know if you have such an immense social safety net you you force out all of the productive class and you have all of the people that are the takers that are you know flooding into these these areas it seems that bankruptcy is is ultimately right. on offer right and if these city leaders actually looked at the entire city and you know if their goal in life was to make the city a better place then right at some point they would sit there and and sort of wake up and do the math and they would say wait a minute this isn't working you know we raise an additional 1 million in revenue but we chase out 10 million worth of business and right. and you know they would stop doing it but of course the problem is that P these leaders are not necessarily doing what's in the interest of <laughs> their voters. They're doing mm. what is in their own personal interest, sure. right? And they're, um, so, you know, sure, give up 1 million 
or what um, gain one million to lose 10 million. But did it help you win the next election? Did you get a nice soundbite out of it? Did you knock out the guy who is uh, coming after you from the other side who's even more progressive? So, you know, for their own personal utility functions, it's basically in their interest to run the place into the ground. Yeah, man. There's a uh, big flaw in democracy, huh? <laughs> I mean, there it, is that. Uh, yeah, that's uh, Hans Hermann Hoppe's thing, right? That yeah. uh, monarchy treats the place like they own it, whereas democracies treat it like a rental car. They they ride it hard. Yeah. Well, and and democracy isn't a, a total disaster if you have a a relatively honorable, hardworking, um, you know, populace that that votes in accordance I, with that. But we don't have that. You could have that. The other solution, of course, is just have a really strong constitution, right? True. A, yeah. a strong constitution is, it's basically a monarch, but he's dead and he's already written down everything that he's going to do. So you don't have to worry about him going crazy. Right. So of course, well, you know, that's what sustained us for 150 years. Yeah. But uh, I mean, then you also have to have a judiciary that's uh, willing to enforce mm -hmm. it properly. And if that becomes politicized in any way, then that's also a doomed path. So it's for sure. it's complicated, man. It's complicated. Well, I, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about the uh, you know the Fed policy and the the uh, <clears throat> interest rate hiking cycle that we've experienced in a in a way that I've never experienced in my lifetime. I don't think you have either. Um, <clears throat> basically, the the Fed funds rate went from a quarter point up to five uh, over a little bit over a year period. Thirty uh, year mortgages are around 7% for 30 years, whereas they were around 3% just a year ago. Um, oh, yeah. And and we really haven't seen the adjustment in pricing of housing that I would have expected, or at least we haven't yet. Uh, I think what's interesting, though, is that if you look at the, the rate on like rent rates versus cost of ownership, if you have a mortgage, um, if you look in major metropolitan areas, as well as some that aren't cities, uh, that that gap is very significant where right. the cost of renting is much cheaper than it is the cost of ownership. And normally you have an equilibrium somewhere around where they're on par with one another. Um, I assume that you'll agree with me that it's more probable that we won't see uh, the, that gap closed by rents increasing, but rather we will see that gap closed by seeing prices decrease. Uh, any Anything I've said that you disagree with? Uh, not that I disagree, but uh, sort of the market can stay uh, irrational longer than you can say solvent right. sort of point, right? So, you know, if you look at places like Canada, for example, that uh, the kind of housing bubble that Canada, Australia, I think the UK as well, they have seen housing bubbles that are massively bigger than sure. even in the US, you know, so for rich people internationally, I mean, the U.S. Is, is really, really a bargain market, even at these prices. So in theory, the rent and the ownership should come together. But in practice, that can take a really, really long time. And, you know, what I think standing in the way at the moment is that um, people are not willing to sell. Right. So normally you have a certain amount of houses that come on the market because people's kids moved out or, you know, whatever. Um, they're downsizing, they're upsizing, they're selling their old place. But in this market right now, as you just mentioned, right, uh, you might have bought the house with a 3% mortgage, but if you sell it and flip to another one now, you're going to have to pay a 7% mortgage. So there's this massive gap right now. And, you know, if people expected those 7% uh, rates to last forever, then, you know, they might just say, well, you know, 
that's life. I'm, I'm going to have to pay more. But of course, in this context, pretty much everybody expects that interest rates are going to come back to normal, which in their mind is something like three, four percent for mortgages. So they expect that to happen in the next year or two, which means that there is a whole lot of supply that is held off the market right now. True. People are basically speculating their kids moved out. They don't need a four bedroom house, but it would actually be more expensive to downsize. Meanwhile, of course, you have inflation that keeps marching and inflation keeps pushing up house prices. So, uh, you know, you have sort of two really strong speculative reasons to keep your house off the market, even if uh, you're ready to move. Well, let me disabuse those people of the notion that uh, three to four uh, percent mortgages are, are the norm. Uh, that yep. is a historic anomaly that we have never seen. Uh, right. I mean, six, six to eight percent was actually more within the ballpark of normal. Um, yeah. And, you know, if there was any semblance of actual uh, you know, risk assessment that was happening when it came to lending out money, I think that that would probably be closer to what a market would actually deliver upon. I, I can mm -hmm. say that because I was a private money mortgage broker and I would only lend money from eight to 10% uh, because that's yeah. that's really where the risk starts to make sense. Uh, anything lower than that and you're just looking at it like, well, this is stupid. Like <laughs> I would never yep. make this investment, but because we have all of these government entities that are either actually printing and lending out the money or, or um, you know, guaranteeing it, uh, Fannie, Freddie, et cetera. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it really has distorted that market in a in a very deep way, and it has ultimately distorted the American psyche when it comes to home ownership. They don't understand it. They think that it's a uh, you know parabolic rise in in housing, yep. but really, it's just uh, in my estimation a a hedge against inflation at at best, right. and ultimately a depreciating asset. Um, it's, it's bizarre though, because I, I've just gone through the, the process of building six houses in San Diego and thank God I'll be out of there in about a month or two months, maybe. Um, <laughs> but it took me five years and, and the, uh, you know, the, the planning, the, obviously the lockdowns and the, the planning departments that just went on hiatus for a year, uh, was backbreaking. But basically what I'm saying is the, the inventory, uh, you know, quotient in the su supply demand ratio is like. That that I just don't know if there's enough building going on to actually offset the people that are in their homes and refuse to list them for sale, even though they probably want to. Um, have you looked into the you know the the new build statistics and things like that? Do you have any idea if that if I'm wrong and that there is going to be a, right. a huge flood of in inventory? The best data, so I don't know the overall numbers. I do know that anecdotally, there have been a number of reports saying that even large developers cannot get financing for projects, right? So that could be downstream where banks themselves are having trouble. Uh, the vast majority, I think about 70% of real estate loans are regional banks, which are currently in trouble thanks to the Fed screwing around. Right. Uh, and so, you know, it might make sense financially for them to lend, but as an organization right now, they are risk averse. And so they're actually holding off loans uh, out of fear that, you know, that could uh, sort of push them into being over leveraged. Right. Because they're concerned about liquidity because they're sitting yep. on a, on a, exactly. on a blo bloodbath book of uh, yes. T-bills and things like that yep. that are underwater because of Fed policy. It It's really like if you were... You know, with our understanding of economics, if you were to try and destroy the economy, 
you, you would, would would you be doing anything yeah, different? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> and and you, you know, this is a frequent topic on Twitter, right? Is people ask, are they doing this on purpose? And I, you know, because it it certainly looks like it's on purpose. It does, man. Um, I, yeah. I, when when I I mean, you just. <laughs> It's like it's also predictable though if you just come from the Austrian school, but it's like these these the people that actually rule over us are come from the Keynesian school or or just straight Marxism, <laughs> and yeah. and uh, it, it's really it's just disturbing. It's disturbing that we have uh, well let, let's let's instead of going down the the black pill path, uh, uh, I'm <laughs> I'm curious to get your your take on Bitcoin. Are you are you a believer? Uh, yeah, I'm definitely a believer. Um, I think that it is effectively gold, but unseizable. You know, gold's biggest flaw, I mean, of course, gold's biggest attraction is that it's physical. That's like the whole point, right? But of right. course, that's that's also its biggest flaw uh, because you have to put it somewhere and you have to put a big wall around it with sharks with laser beams on their head because otherwise right. people will steal your gold. And the problem is that once you do that, it's very, very easy for governments to figure out where your gold is and they can come visit you and they can have pleasant conversations about about what you'll be doing with that gold and it, you know because one of the tricks on being a gold bug is that fiat bros might ask well if gold is so amazing then how come no country today uses gold and i think the answer is because governments are very very good at violence that's in, i mean in fact that's the only thing and they're not particularly good at it but they're very interested they, in doing it they have a monopoly yeah. on it though <laughs> they do and so that means that gold sort of always lives at the pleasure of the state. It is always vulnerable. And so for me, that's really uh, the magic you know, problem that Bitcoin solves. Now, in terms of is, is the dollar going to collapse or we're going to go to Bitcoin, I think there it probably depends on the timing. right? Yeah. So if fiat has like three years left to go, that, which I don't think is likely, but anyway, let's just, for argument's sake, if fiat's only got three years left, then probably the next thing is going to be gold because not that many people understand Bitcoin. They're not real comfortable with it. Uh, on the other hand, if fiat's got another 20 years to go, then I suspect that we'll just skip the whole gold stage altogether. I think either way, we're going to be uh, at a Bitcoin standard sooner or later, whether we're talking 40 years, however long it's going to take. Um, but you know, whether or not we go through this gold stage in between, I think depends on the timing. That's that's a really good analysis, and I I tend to agree with you. I think that, I mean, you've seen uh, particularly the BRICS nations that have been stocking up mm -hmm. on on gold. There, you haven't seen a central bank, uh, you know, aside from El Salvador, that has really even dipped a toe into the Bitcoin market. And I I find that to be really interesting because there is a, a huge first mover advantage for any central bank to do so. I mean, essentially right. they have they have the printing press. You know, they they can acquire something with limited supply with something that they have an unlimited supply of it just seems as if the you know in terms of risk benefit analysis if i was in charge of a central bank i would be absolutely doing that i would be right. you know acquiring a million bitcoin or something if i was the um you know head of the treasury for the us but they're not and i right. i assume it's because they don't want to see uh, you know their their racket fall, and if they were to do so, the cost of Bitcoin would go parabolic, and it would ultimately expedite their demise. Do you think that's the reason they haven't? I think uh, there most central banks in the world are neither buying Bitcoin uh, nor gold, True. Um, and you know the analysis is similar for both, where you have a huge first mover advantage, 
And I think part of that is just lack of creativity. I mean, again, mm. central banks, <laughs> I think, truly do not understand Bitcoin. God, uh, they crazy. don't only attack it yeah, because they're venal. I think they also attack it because they're stupid. Um, <laughs> but, you know, even so, we can sort of control for the stupidity. And, you know, we can look at gold, which should be subject um, to sort of the same dynamics where you've got this big first mover advantage. Mm -hmm. And I think that there there does come a point where central banks start concluding that the whole jig is up and so at that point they'll uh, you know again they'll probably go to gold first just for uh, lack of creativity um <laughs> but until we sort of get to that end stage uh you know most of them are still looking at very conventional assets generally foreign exchange uh some of them dip into etfs and buying up stocks uh, the japanese central bank for example uh, has been doing a lot of that. I think that the most likely scenario where fiat uh, actually gets backing is the BRICS scenario, right? Exactly. Where China is pushing this alternative currency to the U.S. dollar. It's a slow slog for them, right? They're sort of bribing countries into it with cheap development loans and, you know, sort of hand-to-hand, -hand, step by step. That's all going to take a long time. And the game changer there what would really advance a BRICS currency to something that could literally dethrone the U.S. dollar, I think, would be backing it uh, probably with gold. At hmm. that point, I mean, initially, nobody would believe it. They would say, ah, OK, yeah, gold-backed currency from China and, you know, famous monetary expert Brazil. Right. So initially, <laughs> people would laugh. But you you don't actually need that much gold to actually back a currency. It's, it's a surprisingly small amount. China already probably has enough. And if they were to back some kind of BRICS currency and people were to come in and, you know, trade the paper for the gold. And after a couple months of seeing that it actually works, people would start believing it empirically. Well, that that's interesting because I, I actually I was going to go a different direction. And what would yep. dethrone the dollar would be that instead of the BRICS nation and the yuan or, or whatever basket of, of currencies that they make their reserve currency um, mm -hmm. know, competitor out of, um, I was thinking that it would probably be that the the U.S. Um, essentially because they're they're. Let me see how I can phrase this. Um, because there there's been so much demand for treasuries in America, mm -hmm. and and it seems that they're because the BRICS are actually starting to compete. Uh, basically, the overarching analysis here is that I'm I'm really concerned that that the the Ukraine crisis with Russia. And the risk of World War III is about defending the petrodollar system. And I, and I think that the, the biggest threat to the U.S. dollar would be Saudi Arabia and, you know, basically all of the oil producing nations starting to sell in, in something other than U.S. dollars. Uh, is that an overstated concern amongst our camp? Uh, I think it is. Overall, of course, the U.S. wants everybody to use the U.S. dollar, so they continue giving us useful things for, you know, green bits of paper. I think they have that preference, but especially in this administration, they have been so stupid about keeping that reserve status. Uh, there are sort of two big data points. So one of them is actually in the Ukraine conflict, where when it started, the U.S. did sort of its standard menu of sanctions against Russia. But it did something new, which is that it seized the sovereign dollars of the Russian central bank. Right. Okay. So it, it, it took about $300 billion that belonged to the Russian central bank by all accounts. 
in terms of the U.S. economy, that would be more like $4 trillion, Okay, That was a very substantial chunk of change. And they did that because they wanted to set off bank runs in Russia. Mm-hmm. And, of course, that backfired. We got bank runs instead. Yeah. But that, that crossed a really big line for countries all over the world where it, it had sort of been understood, right? Even during the Cold War, we had multiple proxy wars going on all over the world, and we never, ever even talked about doing something like that. And the reason is because if you want to be the reserve currency, you have to take all comers. Uh, You even want your enemies to depend on you, right? And once they politicized that, it it, it was unbelievably stupid. The cost-benefit, right? So whatever pain you're going to inflict on Russia in this particular conflict versus essentially dooming the U.S. dollar on a slow fuse... Because now we're seeing countries all over the world. It's not just the BRICS gang. It's, it's uh, ASEAN, the Southeast Asian countries. They had a conference a couple months ago. The Indonesian president literally said, look what happened to Russia. We have to diversify out of the U.S. dollar. So that is so unbelievably stupid. Uh, another one that they're just starting with this front now is, you know, at least seizing Russian uh, central bank assets most countries don't invade their neighbors. And so maybe you would imagine most countries say, well, sure, but as long as I don't invade Ukraine, then I should be okay. <laughs> and what the administration is doing now is they're putting pressure on countries over their domestic policies. So just uh, the other day, they, they started putting pressure on Uganda. Uganda, like most African countries, is extremely conservative on social issues, obviously. Right. <laughs> this is true for about 185 out of the 200 countries in the world. <laughs> Uh, you know, they're all worth a sanction if Ukraine is over, um, you know, the number of, of of official genders. And so this is sort of opening up a new front here where, you know, countries like Saudi Arabia, countries all across Africa, places like India, Latin America, really pretty much everything, again, has to question, uh, you know, are we going to catch sanctions? Are they going to go after our dollars because they don't like some random domestic policy? And, you know, of course, if you're a country like Uganda, you kind of can't bow to that pressure. I mean, that it's it's a very heartfelt issue in Uganda. Right. Uh, the U.S. is even putting pressure right now on Japan. Japan has a big LGBT policy debate. And traditionally, it had sort of been understood that the U.S. and Japan stay out of each other's domestic affairs because we have a military relationship and, you know, you want to keep that nice and clean. And the administration has been uh, making waves over there because the ambassador has just, you know, been sticking his finger and everything to do with this debate here. And the sort of background uh, intimation is that the military relationship may degrade if Japan doesn't do exactly what the U.S. wants. These countries are not going to accept that kind of serfdom they are going to start diversifying out of the U.S. relationship, which, you know, partly that means, um, you know, looking for other alternatives, whether it's doing it themselves or becoming uh, more friendly to China. Then the other, of course, is directly it means getting out of the dollar. If countries worldwide start getting out of the dollar, then you start this process where the dollar starts getting weaker and weaker. Okay, that means that even... Um, foreign holders that, you know, don't have any beef with the U.S., they start exiting the dollar simply because it's getting weaker, because the trend is not there for them. Uh, You know, Korean (laughs) banks, for example, hold (laughs) hundreds of billions of U.S. dollars uh, in in the form of treasuries, and they just hold them on their balance sheets. They don't have an opinion about the U.S., good nor bad. But if all of these countries now are exiting the U.S. dollar and then the value starts going down, then you could get this giant rush. And, you know, sort of when you zoom out, 
The problem, the unique problem that Americans have is that there are something like two or three times more dollars in existence than Americans need, right? Because mm-hmm. that, that extra one to two X is parked overseas. And right. up until now, it's been happily parked overseas. If all of that money comes rushing back, then the risk is you get that accelerating feedback loop where you know now everybody is flushing the dollar uh, and then the dollar could actually be uniquely weak Essentially, all of the strength that the U.S. dollar built up 80 years out of being the reserve currency, now it all comes back for payback. It's basically an inverse of milkshake theory. It's the the bang moment where the U.S. Yep. dollar becomes the weakest of the bunch as opposed to the strongest. I, that, that's a really great analysis. And, and I think that you know what you're seeing or what you were describing when it comes to these other nations that have really met their limit where they're like we cannot have you dictating our domestic policy when it comes to trans rights this is fucking lunacy what are you talking about um Mm -hmm. uh, you know i what's really what i've really you know had my eyes open to over the past three years since i started doing my show was the the financial warfare um that that has been wrought upon the american people but more broadly the global population uh via the you know, IMF and World Bank, the World Economic Forum, uh, you know, kind of the economic hitman stuff. But then you now have mm-hmm. the implementation of ESG, which propagates CEI and DEI, which has, you know, corporate America, really the many other nations also um, in, in the world that their corporate environment has been forced down this path of accepting some sort of, you know, radical sexual progressivism. And it's um, it's really running afoul of not just the governments of some of the more conservative leaning nations, but it's also getting to to the point that it's so overbearing that even the conservatives, the sleeping giant in America, have seemed to have finally, uh, you know, met their limit. And you're now seeing significant protests against, you know, Bud Light Target, a whole bunch of companies that have been in the news as of late. Uh, do you think that we've met a tipping point where, you know, the, the ESG cabal is actually under threat or is it overstated and we're, we still have a ways to go? I think the coalition is building. I think, unfortunately, it does have a ways to go. Um, the corporate media, the I mean, really, the institutions across American society anyway, have been captured by the left. They, um, you know, proselytize this stuff or propagandize it. We saw the whole machine in, in, in all its glory during COVID you know, uh, pushing the various policies (laughs) um, that they use to fight COVID. And I think that it really takes a long time to fight that. Uh, You know, if you've got family members, for example, who still believe um, sort of the mainstream narrative, it feels like you're talking to an insane person. You're like, do you see this video? And they'll be like, wow, that's probably a fake video. And (laughs) at at what point it's... um, it, I think it takes a long time to break the habits of a lifetime of believing the regime narrative. And, you know, what I think is driving it fundamentally uh, is in the wake of the 2008 crisis, right, where left and right looked like they were going to get together for a minute there, right? We had Occupy Wall Street and Tea Party, and we were saying the same thing. And I think that that was really terrifying to the establishment. And so that, I think, was really the genesis of this when corporate uh, decided that they had to make peace with one side or the other. And, you know, the left activists were sort of better implanted in the institutions because they've infiltrated the government. And so they, they went on this campaign to really divide the two sides. So in a sense, this super aggressive uh, corporate Social policy, I think, 
was their defense mechanism to disarm uh, the people to keep the people in the U.S. split. But of course, the problem is that that particular question is not topical in some places like, say, Japan. You know, the main goal of corporate Japan is not to keep the Japanese people split so that they can keep crushing them. And so for them, this is kind of like this isn't something they want. Right. They would rather not comment on transgender policy or, you know, whatever the issue is. They would rather do what companies have always done, which is stay out of the limelight and just keep doing business. So I think there's this constant tension where, you know, individual companies, whether it's Bud Light or Target or whatever, really it's in their own interest to just stay out of this crap. Just keep doing what you've always been doing and stay above the fray. You know, I think what's pushing it, uh, it probably started with finance, really, because, uh, you know, they are such an unpopular industry at all times that, you know, they keep fanning this stuff. And I mean, it's an interesting question what the transmission mechanism, how other Fortune 500s got on board. Um, but at the end of the day, I think that they have a very fragile coalition where, you know, it is always in shareholders' interest to not stir up trouble. To, you know, if you take the social media companies, for example, it is obviously in the interest of, let's say, Facebook to not censor half their population, right? In the ideal world, everybody in the world, every single human spends all day on Facebook talking about crap so they can look at, 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 at advertisement, right? right? This, this should be Facebook's goal in life. And instead, you know, what are they mucking around with environment and, and um, uh, COVID treatments and so on? Right. Like stick to your knitting. So I think that what's sort of optimistic here is that the business logic is that businesses should always want to shut up and just make the customer happy. Uh, I think a lot of us had sort of relied on that. Like we, at least speaking for myself, I'd sort of trusted big business to do the right thing because it's in their interest. Right. And this is sort of a core belief in economics anyway, is that people will do what's in their interest. And I think what's been amazing is the degree to which a lot of these companies have really been shooting themselves in the foot, uh, presumably because they're responding to this activist pressure where, you know, I think the activist pressure is actually upstream of them, but then they feel this, uh, you know, there's there's a whole set of institutions that will punish you, for example, if you cross the line on something like transgender you've you've um they're sort of captured in a sense where they would prefer to not talk about it uh but they sort of have to well see i i think it the incentive structure is even is even more deranged than that because of the 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 finance um environment that implemented esg sure. i mean it, yep. it because you're it's just not enough pressure from the activist groups to get them to do this like it's just mm-hmm. there's not a big enough percentage of the country that you know alienating the conservative half of this of the U.S. ultimately to the benefit of one to ten percent, maybe if you want to be really gracious, say twenty percent of the population that is all all on board with the sexual progressivism agenda. Um, it just doesn't pencil, but it does pencil right. when you take into consideration BlackRock and its nine trillion dollars. It's going to acquire shares of your company only if you propagate this narrative. Well, what's bizarre to me is that there hasn't been lawsuits for breach of fiduciary duty against mm-hmm. BlackRock, against State Street, Vanguard, the guys who are wielding these pension plans and things like that, that are dictating that these businesses do things that damage the bottom line. That yeah. that to me is really the silver bullet in terms of like breaking this unholy alliance. Um, do you think right. that there's any hope of that in the future? Yeah, I agree. I've been surprised that there have not been more shareholder lawsuits. Um, normally, you know, 
if the CEO of a company is siphoning money off and lending it to his cousin, then right, that's that's not in his fiduciary interest. He may personally believe that his cousin is a very good businessman, but he's not allowed to do that. Right. So similarly, right, you know, if 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 you're Bud Light and you're alienating eighty percent uh, of your um, uh, customer base to appeal to exactly who then you know that that sort of should be looked at the same way as very irresponsible i think that the us legal system has traditionally left that you know sort of had a hands off approach which probably traditionally is the right answer um but the problem is that the mechanisms for that sort of traditional feedback mechanism uh are that you know you get shareholders who organize and then they they bring up uh, votes at the shareholder meeting right. and as you say what's happened is blackrock and some of these other outfits they have I mean, it's really an oligopoly i think it's like two or three outfits that basically control completely uh they're called proxy i think it's proxy advisors yeah. they essentially control corporate america between whatever two or three companies and so, you know, even if there's like a grassroots movement to come up with some some kind of shareholder vote to get these guys to correct, there are countries where that would probably work, like Japan, say. Uh, right. But in the U.S., it is so uh, oligarchic at this point that you're really cut off from that. Yeah, uh, it just it seems criminal. I mean, it really does. Yep. And, you know, I'm I'm a libertarian. I don't really want government involvement in this type of stuff. But the the reality is, is that their oligopoly has been created because of their relationship with the central banks as well as the governments. Mm -hmm. So it's like, but now I have to turn towards the government to try and alleviate this government-created issue, and that doesn't help me ultimately get closer to my worldview most likely either. It's a very um, difficult uh, you know, calculation to make as, as a, ultimately an anarcho-capitalist. I, I, I just I don't have a real answer here. No, it is. And, you know, the story of the genie with the three wishes and the way that that's normally played out is that the wishes are all twisted so right. that you regret every single one. Right. Yes, and yes. that that is government. You know, there are a lot of people um, uh, even on the right side who want to push for government solutions, whether it's uh, social media speech or right. or issues like corporate governance. And you always it it may be a good idea sometimes, but you always want to assume that this is a genie who is not acting in here. You know, the the deep state, the government is almost universally left wing. The judges, the lawyers across the board, everybody who's going to be interpreting this thing is going to be a left winger. It is going to be turned on you. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. And uh, I mean, usually uh, competition is how you yeah. solve these issues. But if you have a, a regulatory environment that's that's so captured and um, you also have ESG and you have basically the 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 reins of lending, which are being strangled right. unless you acquiesce to the diversity, equity, inclusion cabal, um, how do you compete? I mean, you, you would have yep. to you would have to generate the seed capital either through, you know, consumer demand or some other wealthy anarcho-capitalist you know, leaning type of billionaire or something like that. Right. <clears throat> which the, there is an optimistic side to that, though, right, which is that there are enormous opportunities for that sort of circular economy where you've got, let's call it ANCAP, anyway, where you've got ANCAP people selling to ANCAPers, producing ANCAP products, and so on down the line. Because consider, so if you take Twitter, for example, Twitter had this massive exodus of advertisers. Presumably they were getting pressure from activists, and so they were afraid to advertise. What that means is that Twitter ads are cheap. 
And so if you are a small business and you would like to compete with, say, Target, cheap advertising, you know, like if if you're a restaurant and you're getting cheap food, that's definitely a benefit. OK, mm -hmm. uh, you can outcompete the other guys. If you're getting cheap advertising, that is 100 times more powerful than a restaurant getting cheap food because you can scale it. Right. Okay. So if you've got a tiny little business and you're getting almost free advertising, you can grow that thing a hundredfold. It is rocket fuel. I d used to teach marketing at a business school. Cheap advertising is astounding. Okay. It's like nitro, you know, in the tank. Um, so there are benefits with that. Another huge benefit, of course, is that you've got this massive audience who feels disserved. Mm. Right. If you want to do a subscription razor company, normally you've got to go up against Gillette. Gillette knows what it's doing. They have massive brand. They have all these resources. They can call up retailers and get you pulled. It's astounding. Right. But in this case, well, <laughs> the audience is is clamoring for your product. You could you know, put up a website, advertise on, on Twitter. You don't have to go through Walgreens and the rest of it. And you could make a lot more sales than you could if Gillette were actually in the game competing against you. So right. in a sense, it's it's a good thing. It's like uh, corporate America largely has disarmed itself, at least for, I think, easily 50% of the population rejects this stuff. I think it's growing every year. You've got all these people talking about walking away from the Democrats. You know, they are extremists. They're fundamentalists. Uh, if you violate any one point, you look at... Um, uh, J.K. Rowling's the uh, the Harry Potter author, uh, right. lifelong liberal. She was on or progressive. She was on board with every single issue. I mean, she had her card stamped every day for X <laughs> years. And then one single issue she wasn't on board with. And that was it. She was off the bus. And, you know, a lot of people now who are kind of celebrities on the right, uh, people like Jordan Peterson or Elon Musk, they did not start out as libertarians. Uh, generally, I mean, Jordan Peterson was a psychology professor at a prestigious university that is almost shorthand for an extreme liberal. <laughs> right. But what, once you wake up on one issue, you know, this is sort of uh, the red pill or the black pill. You, It's like a, a thread in a sweater. You pull one and the whole thing comes down. So I think going back to that circular economy, if we're looking at a world where uh, advertising specifically um, is extremely cheap and where companies are unwilling to compete with you, uh, for 50, 60, 70 percent of the market. I mean, this is the golden age to end all golden ages to make some money as a non-woke uh, business person. I think that's a that's a great silver lining on all this. And, um, you know, I'll just speak to my own case is that you know, I reach somewhere around in the arena of 20,000 people per episode. And I've only been doing the show for three years. It's like that is that is something that you really couldn't have done without some sort of corporate overlord that was you know harnessing and and ultimately curtailing what i really wanted to say and right. i say whatever the hell i want to say and if i if i feel like it runs afoul of youtube i put it over on rumble and if it yep. <laughs> and if i get yep. suspended from both then i'll have odyssey and i'll have the audio catchers and um, it's like it, essentially i the entrepreneur in this environment even though it is challenging you can always find um, kind of a, a chink in the armor and you can right. you can get through and and I think that you're totally right that there is a huge burgeoning economy of people that or excuse me of demand you know consumers that want this type of information and that that gives me a lot of hope that you know Joe Rogan is the biggest media 
enterprise in human history. <laughs> you know, he's, yeah. some, some of his episodes have been listened to by 40, 50 million people. It's, it's absolutely crazy. So I think that the future is bright. It's just a, a lot of uh, heartache and headache in the interim. Yes. Um, but I, you've, you've recently started your show and, and it seems to be taken off. Go ahead and tell me a little bit about that. Oh, yeah, I was shocked. Uh, I kept talking about how it would be fun to do videos. I used to do these uh, that when I was teaching uh, the students, and they're MBA students, so they would show up um, hungover. And so I would do these little talks at the beginning of class, just kind of going through the news and you know try to make it a little bit interesting for them and mildly funny. The goal was to give them some little thing that they could tell their friends about uh, at night so that, you know, just kind of keep it interesting. And anyway, I was doing that for a while and I enjoyed doing it. And so I told my wife, ah, you know, I think I should get back to doing that. She said, well, just, just put a video. And I was like, no, no, no. You know, I got to practice and I got to get rid of the ums and, you know, I got to do better on camera. And then one morning she asked me, this was with the bank collapse when uh, Silicon Valley bank went down and she said, what's happening with the banks. And I gave her a, whatever a stick for like, and she said, so she got out the camera and she was like, okay, say it again. She put it up. It, by sheer coincidence, happened to be three and a half minutes, which, of course, everybody knows that's way too short for a piece of content. You can't do three and a half minutes. It's, it's, you got to have a narrative and you got to have research. She is, it's got to be 20 minutes because people are driving to work, whatever. Um, but anyway, just by sheer accident, it was three and a half minutes because that's what I told her on the banks. And then it took off. It was like 200,000 views or something. Crazy. And I said, okay, the market has spoken, so <laughs> let me stop thinking about what the product should look like and just continue with this. Yeah. So, yeah, doing that every day now for, I think, three months. That's awesome, man. You're the, the TikTok economist. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, for better or for worse. <laughs> well, I mean, if that's, if that's the attention span that people have, you got to meet people where Apparently, they're at. Apparently, yes, you, know? you do. I, well, it, it's, it's actually, I discovered I like it because the thing is with three and a half minutes, you can go hardcore, right? You can give lots of data. You can give lots of analysis. You don't have to put any helper words in there. You just run through that sucker. Um, because honestly, like if you tried to do that for seven or 10 minutes, the audience is going to get exhausted. Yeah. So th three and a half works. You can like do it really super high level. You can bring in all kinds of terms. You know, you can use metaphors that make central banking. Like one of my top videos was on, uh, money draining out of banks into money market funds. Okay. That is not normally a viral topic. Okay, like I, I would not have guessed of all the topics, money going to money market funds. But, yeah. you know, I think the reason is because they're so short, people don't get exhausted. Well, it's that and it's also just topics that people don't they don't hear about. So it's it's novel. Right. It's novel to the vast majority of people to come across that in a, in a shorter format that they can actually be like. I've never heard this. Let's see what he has to yep. say. Uh, I mean, yeah. I remember on Rumble, my Silicon Valley Bank breakdown, which I also did. I, I mean, I did a 10-minute uh, breakdown on it, and I, I'm a little bit more long-winded than you, but <laughs> I uh, I think it did like 10,000 views over on Rumble, and I was blown away by that because, um, you know, on, I had just... On, on Rumble, that's a lot. Yeah. yeah. And, right. Well, and I had just started my Rumble account, so I had no subscribers, so it just was like... Wow. It was being shared. You know, people were actually yeah. finding it compelling and sharing it because I, I think that... Um, particularly for the Austrian economics backdrop, like we mm -hmm. have an analysis that people just don't hear elsewhere. And ultimately I believe we're correct. So that makes it extra yes. compelling. Um, but yeah, I, I'm, I'm just thrilled to see your success and, and the fact that you've thrown your hat in the ring. I, it, it makes me sad to, to think that a college professor of your 
caliber is is now relegated to the podcast world with <laughs> with us peons but um are are you still are you still teaching at all uh no that was in taiwan so okay. i never taught in the us um okay. the the only schools that would take an austrian um were they didn't want me for religious reasons uh because i'm atheist so um what and, and it, wow. it's common i am not even judging but at any rate, um, typically they would want like a like a pastor statement, and so I I am not going to abuse that system. Uh, but at any rate, so and and my wife was interested in moving back to Asia anyway. She's originally she's Japanese American, mm -hmm. and so we looked at schools in Asia. You have complete political free speech in Asia. There are a ton of right wing professors who are refugees in like Japan, Korea, Taiwan, Thailand absolutely full of them. I think all of the foreign professors at my business school were right-wingers. Uh, I think all of them were actually Christians as well, because that's another group that gets chased out of uh, American academia. Good Lord. So it, it's, yeah. So, I mean, I love being over there. The problem at Taiwan is not it, it's just an incredible country. Uh, the problem is that you're sort of out of the mainstream. And, you know, sure. as I saw the U.S. Uh, fall apart, I kind of felt like I'm when I'm 70, I guess I can go goof around in Taiwan and, and uh, let everybody else take care of it. But I kind of felt like I was not doing my duty. I was not on the wall. Yeah. Well, I, I'm glad you, you are <laughs> back with us because, uh, you know, I think, I think that really does portend um, bad things from a nationalistic perspective when it comes to economic competition. Like if you have uh, uh, academic institutions that, that push out – you know, atheists or Austrian thinkers or Christians for that mm -hmm. matter. Um, how, how can you possibly expect to compete with uh, other academic institutions, which are bringing up thousands and hundreds of thousands, millions even of, or billions in the case of China of, of students that are given a more well-rounded, um, you know, economic sure. understanding, business education, things like that. It just seems, you know, if we, if you're concerned about, you know, U.S. hegemonic economic domination of the globe, that would be the first thing you would do. But instead, we're going the opposite direction. Do you think that trend is, is there any chance of that shifting? Because it doesn't seem like it to me. Yeah, no, I don't think at all. Uh, I think the best we can hope for is just that, you know, if we take business students, for example, in other words, the people who will be running large American companies, uh, my only hope is that they can get news or they can get uh, wisdom and guidance and learning from, you know, channels like ours, basically find <laughs> right. it on YouTube or Twitter or whatever, because I think American academia is just, it is, it is irredeemable. Yeah. Uh, the only way I think that it's going to get fixed is that it has to collapse and it's not going to collapse until it gets cut off from the government money. Well, or, or the government money stops being able to purchase anything. Um, that is other. another way to do it. Yes, that is correct. <laughs> if you get to the point where the government has to keep all its money to pay the soldiers, then yes, a, a, a number of institutions would, would change. Yeah, well, uh, let, let's wrap with that. Let's figure out, um, you know, what's, what's your assessment of the, I mean, there's so many different angles I could take this. Uh, World War Three with Russia and Ukraine and uh, the proxy war. Um, do you think that we avoid that? And and ultimately, do you have any estimation as to our economic situation over the next two to ten years? Um, I, for me, I don't have much doubt on the ultimate end phase, but I have a tremendous amount of uncertainty as to timeline. And I'm, you probably feel similarly, but maybe you have better clarity than I do. Yeah, I think on Ukraine that 
First off, I think the U.S. alone is making the decisions there. I mean, of course, Russia could always just surrender. But knowing what, you know, what everybody's kind of red lines are and what's realistic in the world, uh, I think that war ends when the U.S. decides it ends. And I think that what's most in the U.S. interest is keeping it going on a low smolder as long as possible. Very, very good for the budget. Uh, it exhausts Russia, which I, I'm, I'm not exactly sure why we care who gets exhausted, but at any rate, uh, apparently that's a policy goal. Um, both Ukraine and Russia strike me as not uh, democracies. We'll just leave it there. <laughs> so I'm not sure why we actually have a horse in that fight. Um, I don't think that the U.S. wants to escalate it from there, uh, but you know I'm not super certain of that. I assume that the people in the military still are professional enough that they're not going to let it go too far. But honestly, given I would have thought that during COVID that we had professionals in the CDC and in these other organizations who who you know would have stepped in when it got real crazy, like when they were arresting doctors for prescribing things. I would have right. thought that these sort of deep state protectors would have stepped in and stopped the insanity, but they did not. So it is possible that they will not in Ukraine either. Uh, in terms of the economy in you know the next five or 10 years, I think you and I probably agree that we know how the book ends, but we don't know how each chapter ends. Right. And you know a lot of it is going to have to do with um, just how much the government screws up. I think if you sort of zoom out, it's important to remember that the people in any country, the people are always making everything better. Okay, they are making the economy do better. They are creating jobs. They are, you know, uh, reducing inflation by creating more stuff. Like every single number in a society is always trying to go up. It is trying to get better simply because the people are trying to, to make it better. That's that's the whole notion of free markets. That's why we like free markets in the first place. So, you know, in order, like Biden could be incredibly stupid and he could keep doing stupid things and we could still bounce back. And the reason is simply that he is not stupid enough to counteract. Yeah, to the, offset us. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so, you know, I think if I had to bet on it, like if I were actually putting money on it, then I don't think fiat's going to collapse or, you know, the US dollar is going to completely collapse uh, in the next couple of years. I think that the next 10 years will most likely look like the past 10 years. So it'll be relatively slow growth. Uh, elections along the way are going to change a lot. You know, Trump in many ways changed the trajectory on the economy. Uh, of course, COVID came in or the COVID lockdown screwed that up. Um, but you can get a lot from that. Maybe a cleaner example is Reagan, right? So the 1970s, I think, is closest to where we are right now, where cities were falling apart, the economy sucked, unemployment was high, the um, you know wages were not growing, you had double-digit inflation, and then you got Reagan. And, I mean, it was astounding. It was like somebody had turned on the light and just the entire country flipped. So yeah. I think it is but do, possible. Do we but... have a Paul Volcker, though? No, I don't think we do, because uh, I think the establishment saw what happened with the last Paul Volcker, which is that, uh, and for those who don't know, Paul Volcker crashed the economy. Um, it, really, he's largely responsible for <laughs> the morning in America um, yeah. of Reagan. But the problem with Paul Volcker is that Jimmy Carter lost that election, mm. right? In other words, all of Washington saw what happened, which is that Volcker forced Jimmy Carter to take one for the team. And they're not interested in doing that again. And so I think that as successful as Volcker was for the American people, from the Uniparty DC perspective, he was an enormous failure. They would have been much better off just keep grinding it down. Yeah. Well, that's that's a I, 
makes me wonder. I, I I shouldn't wonder. I shouldn't give Trump any sort of benefit of the doubt. But with him not having another election after if he were to win in 24, he would have the capacity to do what's right. But unfortunately, I already know his track record, and it was to, to browbeat Jerome Powell or whoever it was into reducing interest rates and, and ultimately loosening monetary policy when he should have been tightening. And I just don't think that he's got the worldview that's necessary to make that happen. So I think that we're probably on a, a slow path to a, a ultimate hyperinflationary um, blowout just because we don't have you know, the political will or uh, anyone with a low enough time preference to actually do the right thing. Um, yeah. But we'll, we'll yeah, see. And, 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 you know, again, to sort of end on a bright note, yes, at please. that point, we, we do get to a hard money uh, system once again. We will eventually True. get there. Of course, there's the easy way and the hard way, right? The easy way is to convince enough people that voters, you know, elect more Ron Pauls and and we can actually have an adult conversation. Uh, and then there's the hard way, which is that we get there anyway. So like many policies, uh, like the free market in general, you are always going to get to the free market. It's just, you know, how much, <laughs> uh, how much human suffering comes between now and then. So <laughs> How many times I, I do we get kicked optimistic. in the mouth? <laughs> yeah, How many times well, do we get kicked know, in the mouth in the interim? The, the, the funny thing um, to me anyway is that if you look at the history of every communist revolution in the 20th century, every single one of them went right wing. They went mm. socially conservative. Every single one, almost overnight. Fidel Castro was, um, or no, the other guy, the guy with the motorcycle, Che. Che, che Guevara, was yeah. was personally murdering uh, homosexuals in Cuba. He, he, he was joyously. He requested to do that. Most leaders don't ask to do that because it's not considered a fun job. Uh, <laughs> China, Soviet Union, all of these countries literally outlawed homosexuality. Yeah. Um, China at the moment, they put out guidance saying no girly men on TV, right? Hmm. Which, uh, of course, includes no homosexuals on TV. So the, the uh, sort of irony here, this is what I keep trying to tell left-wingers. I'm like, guys, you don't understand what you're doing. <laughs> if yeah. you keep pushing like this, you are going to get the exact opposite of what you want. Now, you're also going to have a lot of misery and starving children and all these other things that come along with, 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 with communism. So I'm not rooting for it. But the moral of the story here is that you know, when you see this incredibly powerful sort of deep state activist, you know, academia, the public schools, you know, you've got just this overwhelming odds on the other side. Uh, but you always remember that they always lose because their system does not work. Everything always goes back to tradition, free markets, hard money. There you have it, folks. We're going to be all right. Straight from the mouth of Professor Peter St. Ange. Uh, I've already linked to his info down below. If you guys want to support my work, go to libertylockdown.locals.com. And if you'd like to come see me speak, I will be at Icarus Fest. Go to IcarusFest.com. Um, use code LOCKDOWN20 for 20% off. It is this Saturday in New Jersey. Come check it out. It's a, one of the best lineups of anti-war speakers I've ever seen, and I think it'll be a blast. Thank you again for joining us. <laughs> of course. It was a pleasure. It was fun, Clint. We'll catch you guys soon. We're out. Welcome to Liberty Lockdown. Please scan your barcode. Your liberty ain't gone, but yeah, it's on hold. Where did it come from and where did it go?